Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. A couple of things before we begin. LeVar Burton Reads is coming back for a brand new season of 12 episodes this spring, so mark those calendars April 2nd. I cannot wait for you to hear these stories. And to make sure that you don't miss anything, make sure that you're subscribed to this feed. Add it to your favorites in your podcast app. That way, when we're back, we will magically appear and you won't have to lift a finger. And while you're at it, if you know someone who could use some great storytelling or could benefit from taking a deep breath, help them subscribe too. I know lots of people still don't know how to access podcasts, so it's a very nice thing that you can do for someone. And recommend an episode that you love to start them off. Who knows? Maybe it'll be this one. Or maybe it'll be the Paper Menagerie. If you've listened back to our first season of the show, then I'll bet you remember that story. So when I visited Boston last fall and had to think of an author in the area to have as my guest, well, it was a no-brainer. Ken Liu is an author of speculative fiction, as well as a translator, a lawyer, and a programmer. The man codes. He's racked up plenty of wins at the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards. He's got a silk punk epic fantasy series collectively known as the Dandelion Dynasty. And he's also translated many works from Chinese to English, including The Three-Body Problem. And boy, does he ever pack a wallop in his stories, both in world-building and emotionally. Our story tonight is from Ken's short fiction collection, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. And I'm thrilled to say that on this episode, we have musical accompaniment from some local Boston musicians, Katie Huary on flute and her brother Jake Huary on synthesizer. Now, I'm going to tell you just a couple of things about this story before we begin. First, our narrator refers to two Japanese kanji characters during the story. And it may be helpful for you to take a look at the shape of those characters while you listen. We'll post them on the LeVar Burton Reads Facebook page along with this episode link. 
It's not like you'll be lost if you don't look at the kanji, but it's a great element of the story and of the written text. And second, okay, I am warning you that Ken Liu's story will reinforce your faith in humanity and possibly make you cry at the same time. So maybe save this for when you're not driving. I'm just saying. All right. Enjoy. Let's take a deep breath. And begin. Mono no Aware by Kien Lu. The world is shaped like the kanji for umbrella, only written so poorly like my handwriting that all of the parts are out of proportion. My father would be greatly ashamed at the childish way I still form my characters. Indeed, I can barely write many of them anymore. My formal schooling back in Japan ceased when I was only eight. Yet for present purposes, this badly drawn character will do. The canopy up there is the solar sail. Even that distorted kanji can only give you a hint of its vast size, a hundred times thinner than rice paper. The spinning disks fan out a thousand kilometers into space like a giant kite, intent on catching every passing photon. It literally blocks out the sky. Beneath it dangles a long cable of carbon nanotubes, a hundred kilometers long, strong, light, and flexible. At the end of the cable hangs the heart of the hopeful, the habitat module, a 500-meter-tall cylinder into which all of the 1,021 inhabitants of the world are packed. The light from the sun pushes against the sail, propelling us on an ever-widening, ever-accelerating, spiraling orbit away from it. The acceleration pins all of us against the decks, giving everything weight. Our trajectory takes us toward a star called 61 Virginis. You can't see it now because it is behind the canopy of the solar sail. The hopeful will get there in about 300 years, more or less. With luck, my great, great, great... I calculated how many greats I needed once, but I don't remember now. Grandchildren will see it. There are no windows in the habitat module, no casual view of the stars streaming past. Most people don't care, having grown bored of seeing the stars long ago. But... I like looking through the cameras mounted on the bottom of the ship so that I can gaze at this view of the receding reddish glow of our sun. Our past. Hiroto, Dad said as he shook me awake. Pack up your things. It's time. My small suitcase was ready. I just had to put my go set into it. Dad gave this to me when I was five, and the times we played were my favorite hours of the day. The sun had not yet risen when Mom and Dad and I made our way outside. All the neighbors were standing outside their houses with their bags as well, and we greeted one another politely under the summer stars. 
as usual. I looked for the hammer. It was easy. Ever since I could remember, the asteroid had been the brightest thing in the sky, except for the moon, and every year it grew brighter. A truck with loudspeakers mounted on top drove slowly down the middle of the street. Attention, citizens of Kurame. Please make your way in an orderly fashion to the bus stop. There will be plenty of buses to take you to the train station where you can board the train for Kagoshima. Though do not drive, you must leave the roads open for the evacuation buses and official vehicles. Every family walks slowly down the sidewalk. Mrs. Maeda, Dad said to our neighbor, why don't I carry your luggage for you? I'm very grateful, the old woman said. After ten minutes of walking, Mrs. Maeda stopped and leaned against the lamppost. It's just a little longer, Granny, I said. She nodded, but was too out of breath to speak. I tried to cheer her. Are you looking forward to seeing your grandson in Kagoshima? I miss Michi, too. You will be able to sit with him and rest on the spaceships. They say there will be enough seats for everyone. Mom smiled at me approvingly. How fortunate we are to be here, Dad said. He gestured at the orderly rows of people moving toward the bus stop, the young men in clean shirts and shoes looking solemn, the middle-aged women helping their elderly parents, the clean, empty streets, and the quietness. Despite the crowd, no one spoke above a whisper. The very air seemed to shimmer with the dense connections between all the people, families, neighbors, friends, colleagues, as invisible and strong as threads of silk. I had seen on TV what was happening in other places around the world. Looters screaming, dancing through the streets, soldiers and policemen shooting into the air and sometimes into crowds, burning buildings, teetering piles of dead bodies, generals shouting before frenzied crowds, vowing for vengeance for ancient grievances, even as the world was ending. Hiroto, I want you to remember this, Dad said. He looked around, overcome by emotion. It is in the face of disasters that we show our strength as a people. Understand that we are not defined by our individual loneliness, but by the web of relationships in which we are enmeshed. A person might rise above his selfish needs so that all of us can live in harmony. The individual is small and powerless, but bound tightly together as a whole. The Japanese nation is invincible. Mr. Shimizu, eight-year-old Bobby says, I don't like this game. The school is located in the very center of the cylindrical habitat module where it can have the benefit of the most shielding from radiation. In front of the classroom hangs a large American flag to which the children say their pledge every morning. To the sides of the American flag are two rows of smaller flags belonging to other nations with survivors on the hopeful. At the very end 
On the left side is a child's rendition of the Hinomaru. Corners of the white paper now curled and the once bright red rising sun faded to the orange of sunset. I drew it the day I came aboard the hopeful. I pull up a chair next to the table where Bobby and his friend Eric are sitting. Why don't you like it? Between the two boys is a 19 by 19 grid of straight lines. A handful of black and white stones have been placed on the intersections. Once every two weeks, I have the day off from my regular duties monitoring the status of the solar sail and come here to teach the children a little bit about Japan. I feel silly doing it sometimes. How can I be their teacher when I have only a boy's hazy memories of Japan? But there is no other choice. All the non-American technicians like me feel it is our duty to participate in the cultural enrichment program at the school and pass on what we can. All the stones look the same, Bobby says, and they don't move. They're boring. What game do you like, I ask. Asteroid Defender, Eric says. Now that is a good game. You get to save the world. I mean a game you do not play on the computer. Bobby shrugs. Chess, I guess. I like the queen. She's powerful and different from everyone else. She's a hero. Chess is a game of skirmishes, I say. The perspective of Go is bigger. It encompasses entire battles. There are no heroes in Go, Bobby says stubbornly. I don't know how to answer him. There was no place to stay in Kagoshima, so everyone slept outside along the road to the spaceport. On the horizon, we could see the great silver escape ships gleaming in the sun. Dad had explained to me that fragments had broken off the hammer, were headed for Mars and the moon, so the ships would have to take us farther into deep space to be safe. I would like a window seat, I said, imagining the stars steaming by. You should yield the window seat to those younger than you, Dad said. Remember, we must all make sacrifices to live together. We piled our suitcases into walls and draped sheets over them to form shelters from the wind and the sun. Every day, inspectors from the government came by to distribute supplies and to make sure everything was all right. Be patient, the government inspectors said. We know things are moving slowly, but we're doing everything we can. There will be seats for everyone. We were patient. Some of the mothers organized lessons for the children during the day, and the fathers set up a priority system so that families with aged parents and babies could board first when the ships were finally ready. After four days of waiting, the reassurances from the government inspectors did not sound quite as reassuring. Rumors spread through the crowd. It's the ships. Something's wrong with them. The builders lied to the government and said they were ready when they weren't, and now the prime minister is too embarrassed to admit the truth. You know, I hear there's only one ship, and only a few hundred of the most important people will have seats. The other ships are only hollow shells for show. They're hoping 
that the Americans will change their mind and build more ships for allies like us. Mom came to Dad and whispered in his ear. Dad shook his head and stopped her. Do not repeat such things. But for Hiroto's sake, no! I'd never heard Dad sound so angry. He paused, swallowed. We must trust each other. Trust the Prime Minister and the Self-Defense Forces. Mom looked unhappy. I reached out for her hand and held it. I'm not afraid, I said. That's right, Dad said, relief in his voice. There's nothing to be afraid of. He picked me up in his arms. I was slightly embarrassed, for he had not done such a thing since I was very little, and pointed at the densely packed crowd of thousands and thousands spread around us as far as the eye could see. Look at how many of us there are. Grandmothers, young fathers, big sisters, little brothers. For anyone to panic and begin to spread rumors in such a crowd would be selfish and wrong. Many people could be hurt. We must keep to our places and always remember the bigger picture. Mindy and I make love slowly. I like to breathe in the smell of her dark, curly hair. Lush, warm, tickling the nose like the sea, like fresh salt. Afterward, we lie next to each other, gazing up at my ceiling monitor. I keep looping it on a view of the receding star field. Mindy works in navigation, and she records the high-resolution cockpit video feed for me. I like to pretend that it's a big skylight, and we're lying under the stars. I know some others like to keep their monitors showing photographs and videos of old Earth, but that makes me too sad. How do you say star in Japanese? Mindy asks. Hoshi, I tell her. And how do you say guest? Okiyaku-san. So, we are Hoshi Okiyaku-san, star guests? It doesn't work like that, I say. Mindy is a singer, and she likes the sound of languages other than English. It's hard to hear the music behind the words when their meanings get in the way, she once told me. Spanish is Mindy's first language, but she remembers even less of it than I do of Japanese. Often, she asks me for Japanese words and weaves them into her songs. I try to phrase it poetically for her, but I'm not sure if I'm successful. We have come to be guests among the stars. There are a thousand ways of phrasing everything, Dad used to say, each appropriate to an occasion. He taught me that our language is full of nuances and supple grace, each sentence a poem. The language folds in on itself, 
The unspoken words as meaningful as the spoken. Context within context, layer upon layer, like the steel and samurai swords. I wish Dad were around so that I could ask him, how do you say I miss you in a way that is appropriate to the occasion of your 25th birthday as the last survivor of your race? My sister was really into Japanese picture books, manga. Like me, Mindy is an orphan. It's part of what draws us together. Do you remember much about her? Not really. I was only five or so when I came aboard the ship. Before that, I only remember a lot of guns firing, and all of us hiding in the dark, and running, and crying, and stealing food. She was always there to keep me quiet by reading from the manga books. And then... I had watched the video only once. From our high orbit, the blue and white marble that was the Earth seemed to wobble for a moment as the asteroid struck, and then the silent, roiling waves of spreading destruction that slowly engulfed the globe. I pull her to me and kiss her forehead lightly, a kiss of comfort. Let us not speak of sad things. She wraps her arms around me tightly as though she will never let go. The manga, do, do you remember anything about them? I ask. <laughs> I remember they were full of giant robots. I thought, Japan is so powerful. I try to imagine it. Heroic, giant robots all over Japan working desperately to save the people. The Prime Minister's apology was broadcast through the loudspeakers. Some also watched it on their phones. I remember very little of it except that his voice was thin and he looked very frail and old. He looked genuinely sorry. I've let the people down. The rumors turned out to be true. The shipbuilders had taken the money from the government but did not build ships that were strong enough or capable of what they promised. They kept up the charade until the very end. We found out the truth only when it was too late. Japan was not the only nation that failed her people. The other nations of the world had squabbled over who should contribute how much to a joint evacuation effort when the hammer was first discovered on its collision course with Earth. And then, when that plan had collapsed, most decided that it was better to gamble that the hammer would miss and spend the money and lives on fighting with one another instead. After the Prime Minister finished speaking, the crowd remained silent. A few angry voices shouted, but soon quieted down as well. Gradually, in an orderly fashion, people began to pack up and leave the temporary campsites. The people just went home? Mindy asks, incredulous. Yes. There was no looting, no panicked runs, no soldiers mutinying in the streets. This was Japan, I tell her, and I can hear the pride in my voice and echo of my father's. I guess the people were resigned, Mindy says. They had given up. Maybe it's a culture thing. 
No. I fight to keep the heat out of my voice. Her words irk me like Bobby's remark about go being boring. That is not how it was. Who is Dad speaking to? I asked. That is Dr. Hamilton, Mom said. We, uh, he and your father and I went to college together in America. I watched Dad speak English on the phone. He seemed like a completely different person. It wasn't just the cadences and pitch of his voice. His face was more animated. His hand gestured more wildly. He looked like a foreigner. He shouted into the phone. What is Dad saying? Mom shushed me. She watched Dad intently, hanging on every word. No, Dad said into the phone. No, I did not need that translated. Afterward, Mom said, he is trying to do the right thing in his own way. He is as selfish as ever, Dad snapped. Oh, that's not fair, Mom said. He did not call me in secret. He called you instead because he believed that if your positions were reversed, he would gladly give the woman he loved a chance to survive, even if it's with another man. Dad looked at her. I had never heard my parents say I love you to each other, but some words did not need to be said to be true. I would never have said yes to him, Mom said, smiling. Then she went to the kitchen to make our lunch. Dad's gaze followed her. It's a fine day, Dad said to me. Let us go on a walk. We passed other neighbors walking along the sidewalks. We greeted one another, inquired after one another's health. Everything seemed normal. The hammer glowed even brighter in the dusk overhead. You must be very frightened, Hiroto, he said. They won't try to build more escape ships? Dad did not answer. The late summer wind carried the sound of cicadas to us. Nothing in the cry of cicadas suggests they are about to die. Dad, that is a poem by Basha. Do you understand it? I shook my head. I did not like poems much. Dad sighed and smiled at me. He looked at the setting sun and spoke again. The fading sunlight holds infinite beauty though it is so close to the day's end. I recited the lines to myself. Something in them moved me. I tried to put the feeling into words. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a gentle kitten is licking the inside of my heart. Instead of laughing at me, Dad nodded solemnly. That is a poem by the classical Tang poet Li Shangyin. Though he was Chinese, the sentiment is very much Japanese. We walked on, and I stopped by the yellow flower of a dandelion. The angle at which the flower was tilted struck me as very beautiful. I got the kitten tongue-tickling sensation 
in my heart again. The flower, I hesitated. I could not find the right words. Dad spoke. The drooping flower, as yellow as the moonbeam, so slender tonight. I nodded. The image seemed to me at once so fleeting and so permanent, like the way I had experienced time as a young child. It made me a little sad and glad at the same time. Everything passes, Hiroto, Dad said. That feeling in your heart, it's called mono no aware. It is a sense of the transience of all things in life. The sun, the dandelion, the cicada, the hammer, and all of us, we are all subject to the equations of James Clerk Maxwell. And we are all ephemeral patterns destined to eventually fade, whether in a second or an eon. I looked around at the clean streets, the slow-moving people, the, the grass, and the evening light, and I knew that everything had its place. Everything was all right. Dad and I went on walking, our shadows touching. Even though the hammer hung right overhead, I was not afraid. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. 
when you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Now, let's get back to our story. My job involves staring at the grid of indicator lights in front of me. It is a bit like a giant go-board. It is very boring most of the time. The lights, indicating tension on various spots of the solar sail, course through the same pattern every few minutes as the sail gently flexes in the fading light of the distant sun. The cycling pattern of the lights is as familiar to me as Mindy's breathing when she's asleep. We're already moving at a good fraction of the speed of light. Some years hence, when we're moving fast enough, we'll change our course for 61 Virginis and its pristine planets, and we'll leave the sun that gave birth to us behind like a forgotten memory. But today, the pattern of lights feels off. One of the lights in the southwest corner seems to be blinking a fraction of a second too fast. Navigation, I say into the microphone, this is sail monitor station Alpha. Can you confirm that we're on course? A minute later, Mindy's voice comes through my earpiece, tinged slightly with surprise. I hadn't noticed, but there was a slight drift off course. What happened? I'm not sure yet. I stare at the grid before me, at the stubborn light that is out of sync, out of harmony. Mom took me to Fukuoka without Dad. We'll be shopping for Christmas, she said. We want to surprise you. Dad smiled and shook his head. We made our way through the busy streets. Since this might be the last Christmas on Earth, there was an extra sense of gaiety in the air. On the subway, I glanced at the newspaper held up by the man sitting next to us. USA Strikes Back was the headline. The big photograph showed the American president smiling triumphantly. Below that was a series of other pictures, some I had seen before. The first experimental American evacuation ship from years ago exploding on its test flight. The leader of some rogue nation claiming responsibility on TV. American soldiers marching into a foreign capital. Below the fold was a smaller article, American scientists skeptical of doomsday scenario. Dad had said that some people preferred to believe that a disaster was unreal rather than accept that nothing could be done. I looked forward to picking out a present for Dad, but instead of going to the electronics district where I had expected Mom to take me to buy him a gift, we went to a section of the city I had never been to before. Mom took out her phone and made a brief call, speaking in English. I looked up at her, surprised. Then we were standing in front of a building with a great American flag flying over it. We went inside and sat down in an office, and an American man came in. His face was sad, but he was working hard not to look sad. Green. The man called my mother's name and stopped. In that one syllable, I heard regret and longing, and a complicated story. 
This is Dr. Hamilton, Mom said to me. I nodded and offered to shake his hand as I had seen Americans do on TV. Dr. Hamilton and Mom spoke for a while. She began to cry, and Dr. Hamilton stood awkwardly as though he wanted to hug her but dared not. You will be staying with Dr. Hamilton, Mom said to me. What? She held my shoulders, bent down, and looked into my eyes. The Americans have a secret ship in orbit. It is the only ship they managed to launch into space before they got into this war. Dr. Hamilton designed the ship. He's my old friend, and he can bring one person aboard with him. It's your only chance. No, I'm not leaving. Eventually, Mom opened the door to leave. Dr. Hamilton held me tightly as I kicked and screamed. We were all surprised to see Dad standing there. Mom burst into tears. Dad hugged her, which I'd never seen him do. It seemed a very American gesture. I'm sorry, Mom said. She kept saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, as she cried. It's okay, Dad said. I, I understand. Dr. Hamilton let me go, and I ran up to my parents, holding onto both of them tightly. Mom looked at Dad, and in that look, she said nothing and everything. Dad's face softened like a wax figure coming to life. He sighed and looked at me. You are not afraid, are you? Dad asked. I shook my head. Then it is okay for you to go, he said. He looked into Dr. Hamilton's eyes. Thank you for taking care of my son. Mom and I both looked at him, surprised. A dandelion in late autumn's cooling breeze spreads seeds far and wide. I nodded, pretending to understand. Dad hugged me fiercely, quickly. Remember that, that you are Japanese. And they were gone. Something has punctured the sail, Dr. Hamilton says. The tiny room holds only the most senior command staff, plus Mindy and me, because we already know there is no reason to cause a panic among the people. The hole is causing the ship to list to the side, veering off course. If the hole is not patched, the tear will grow bigger, the sail will soon collapse, and the hopeful will be adrift in space. Is there any way to fix it? The captain asks. Dr. Hamilton, who has been like a father to me, shakes his head full of white hair. I've never seen him so despondent. The tear is several hundred kilometers from the hub of the sail. It will take many days to get someone out there because you can't move too fast along the surface of the sail. The risk of another tear is too great. And by the time we do get anyone out there, the tear will have grown too large to patch. And so it goes. Everything passes. I close my eyes and picture the sail, 
The film is so thin that if it is touched carelessly, it will be punctured. But the membrane is supported by a complex system of folds and struts that give the sail rigidity and tension. As a child, I had watched them unfold in space like one of my mother's origami creations. I imagine hooking and unhooking a tether cable to the scaffolding of struts as I skim along the surface of the sail, like a dragonfly dipping across the surface of a pond. I can make it out there in 72 hours, I say. Everyone turns to look at me. I explain my idea. I know the patterns of the struts well because I have monitored them from afar for most of my life. I can find the quickest path. Dr. Hamilton is dubious. Those struts were never designed for a maneuver like that. I never planned for this scenario. Then we'll improvise, Mindy says. We're Americans, damn it. We never just give up. Dr. Hamilton looks up. Thank you, Mindy. We plan, we debate, we shout at each other, we work throughout the night. The climb up the cable from the habitat module to the solar sail is long and arduous. It takes me almost 12 hours. Let me illustrate for you what I look like with the second character in my name. It means to soar. See that radical? On the left, that's me, tethered to the cable with a pair of antenna coming out of my helmet. On my back are the wings, or in this case, booster rockets and extra fuel tanks that push me up and up toward the great reflective dome that blocks out the whole sky, the gossamer mirror of the solar sail. Mindy chats with me on the radio link. We tell each other jokes, share secrets, Speak of things we want to do in the future. When we run out of things to say, she sings to me. The goal is to keep me awake. Ware ware wa hoshi no aida ni kyakunikita te. It has been 36 hours since I left the ship. Mindy's voice is now tired, flagging. She yawns. Sleep, baby, I whisper into the microphone. I'm so tired that I want to close my eyes just for a moment. I'm walking along the road on a summer evening, and my father next to me. We live in a land of volcanoes and earthquakes, typhoons and tsunamis, Hiroto. We have always faced a precarious existence, suspended in a thin strip on the surface of this planet between the fire underneath and the icy vacuum above. And I'm back in my suit again, alone. My momentary loss of concentration causes me to bang my backpack against one of the beams of, of the sail, almost knocking one of the fuel tanks loose. I grab it just in time. The mass of my equipment has been lightened down to the last gram so that I can move fast and there is no margin for error. I can't afford to lose anything. I try to shake the dream and keep on moving. Yet it is this awareness of the closeness of death, of the beauty inherent in each moment that allows us to endure. Mono no aware 
my son, is an empathy with the universe. It is the soul of our nation. It has allowed us to endure Hiroshima, to endure the occupation, to endure deprivation and the prospect of annihilation without despair. Hiroto, wake up! Mindy's voice is desperate, pleading. I jerk awake. I have not been able to sleep for how long now? Two days? Three? Four? For the final 50 or so kilometers of the journey, I must let go of the sail struts and rely on my rockets alone to travel untethered, skimming over the surface of the sail while everything is moving at a fraction of the speed of light. The very idea is enough to make me dizzy. And suddenly, my father is next to me again, suspended in space below the sail. We're playing a game of go. Look! In the southwest corner, do you see how your army has been divided in half? My white stones will soon surround and capture this entire group. I look where he's pointing and I see the crisis. There is a gap that I missed. What I thought was my one army was in reality two separate groups with a hole in the middle. I have to plug the gap with my next stone. Shake away the hallucination. I have to finish this and then I can sleep. There is a hole in the torn sail before me. At the speed we're traveling, even a tiny speck of dust that escaped the ion shields can cause havoc. The jagged edge of the hole flaps gently in space, propelled by solar wind and radiation pressure. While an individual photon is tiny, insignificant, without Even mass, all of them together, can propel a sail as big as the sky and push a thousand people along. The universe is wondrous. I lift a black stone and prepare to fill the gap to connect my armies into one. The stone turns back into the patching kit from my backpack. I maneuver my thrusters until I'm hovering right over the gash in the sail. Through the hole, I can see the stars beyond, the stars that no one on the ship has seen for many years. I look at them and, and I imagine that around one of them, one day, the human race fused into a new nation will recover from near extinction. They'll start afresh and flourish again. Carefully, I apply the bandage over the gash and I turn on the heat torch. I run the torch over the gash and I can feel the bandage melting to spread out and fuse with the hydrocarbon chains in the sail film. When that's done, vaporize and deposit silver atoms over it to form a shiny, reflective layer. It, it's working, I say into the microphone, and I hear the muffled sounds of celebration in the background. You're a hero, Mindy says. I think of myself as a giant Japanese robot in a manga and smile. The torch sputters and goes out. Look carefully, Dad says. You want to play your next stone there to plug that hole, but is that what you really want? I shake the fuel tank attached to the torch. Nothing. This was the tank that I banged against one of the sail beams. The collision must have caused a leak, and there isn't enough fuel left to finish the patch. The bandage flaps gently, only half attached to the gash. 
Come back now, Dr. Hamilton says. We'll replenish your supplies and try again. I'm exhausted. No matter how hard I push, I will not be able to make it back out here as fast. And by then, who knows how big the cash will have grown. Dr. Hamilton knows this as well as I do. He just wants to get me back to the warm safety of the ship. I still have fuel in my tank, the fuel that is meant for my return trip. My father's face is expectant. I see. I speak slowly. If I play my next stone in this hole, I will not have a chance to get back to the small group up in the northeast. You'll capture them. One stone cannot be in both places. You have to choose, son. Tell me what to do. I look into my father's face for an answer. Look around you, Dad says. And I see Mom, Mrs. Maeda, the Prime Minister, all our neighbors from Kurume, and all of the people who waited with us in Kagoshima, in Kyushu, in all the four islands, all over Earth and on the hopeful. They look expectantly at me, for me to do something. Dad's voice is quiet. The stars shine and blink. We are all guests passing through, a smile and a name. I, I, I have a solution, I tell Dr. Hamilton over the radio. I knew you'd come up with something, Mindy says, her voice proud and happy. Dr. Hamilton is silent for a while. He knows what I'm thinking. And then, Hiroto. Thank you. I unhook the torch from its useless fuel tank and connect it to the tank on my back. I turn it on. The flame is bright, sharp, a blade of light. I marshal photons and atoms before me, transforming them into a web of strength and light. The stars on the other side have been sealed away again. The mirrored surface of the sail is perfect. Correct your course. I speak into the microphone. It's done. Acknowledged, Dr. Hamilton says. His voice is that of a sad man trying not to sound sad. You have to come back first, Mindy says. If we correct course now, you'll have nowhere to tether yourself. It's okay, baby, I whisper into the microphone. I'm not coming back. There's not enough fuel left. We'll come for you. You can't navigate the struts as quickly as I did, I tell her gently. No one knows their patterns as well as I do. By the time you get here, I will have run out of air. I wait until she's quiet again. Let us not speak of sad things. I love you. Then I turn off the radio and push off into space so that they aren't tempted to mount a useless rescue mission and I fall down far, far below the canopy of the sail. I watch as the sail turns away, unveiling the stars in their full glory. The sun, so faint now, is only one star among many, neither rising nor setting. I am 
cast adrift among them, alone and also at one with them. A kitten's tongue tickles the inside of my heart. I play the next stone in the gap. Dad plays as I thought he would, and my stones in the northeast corner are gone, cast adrift. But my main group is safe. They may even flourish in the future. Maybe there are heroes in Go, Bobby's voice says. Mindy called me a hero, but I was simply a man in the right place, the right time. Dr. Hamilton is also a hero because he designed the hopeful. Mindy is also a hero because she kept me awake. My mother is also a hero because she was willing to give me up so that I could survive. My father is also a hero because he showed me the right thing to do. We are defined by the places we hold in the web of others' lives. I pull my gaze back from the go board until the stones fuse into larger patterns of shifting life and pulsing breath. Individual stones are not heroes, but all the stones together are heroic. It is a beautiful day for a walk, isn't it? Dad says. And we walk together down the street so that we can remember every passing blade of grass, every dewdrop, every fading ray of the dying sun. Infinitely beautiful. Y'all give it up for Katie Query and Jake Query. And now, my conversation with Kim Lou. Anybody need a tissue? <laughs> wow. Boy, you are a motherfucker, man. <laughs> And, and, and I mean that in the best way imaginable. <laughs> so, uh, heroes. Who, who do you find heroic, Ken? What, what, what makes up the, the character of a hero in your eyes? You know, I've, um, my answer to this has changed a lot over my life. Um, yeah, as, it, as it should. Yeah, I mean, when I was a kid... Um, heroes were the great leaders right. who led their people to victory. Mm -hmm. um, but the older I grew, uh, the more I think about the people who simply endured day after day um, and made it through. Um, their names were not remembered, um, but without them, we would not be here. I think of all the my ancestors who simply lived um, another day um, in, in horrible circumstances uh, just to give their 
children another chance. Um, a chance being, better than the one that they themselves yeah, to, might have been dealt by life. And, and held on to hope. Yeah, um, the, right. the, the idea that it actually is possible, that surviving actually means something, that if you just keep at it long enough, um, something better will come along. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they're the heroes they uh, to me. Amen. I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I, I resemble that that sentiment in, in the sense that I, I think too of my ancestors, you know, um, who, who endured mm -hmm. insufferable things um, with hope and w with, with the conviction that it would be better for future generations. Mm -hmm. And um, a woman said to me on, on stage in Toronto uh, the other night at one of these shows, she, she said to me, you are our ancestors' wildest dream. LeVar. Yeah, oh, uh, yeah. So, so, Ken, we've tackled a lot of stories on the podcast that have to do with memory, right? The struggle to retain memories, to pass them down to the generations, how memories shift and warp over time. Transmission of culture also comes up frequently in the stories that I tend to like and, and read on the podcast. Um, how do you preserve cultural memory and, and heritage in, in your writing? You know, uh, I actually feel that the way to preserve, to honor memory mm -hmm. and to, to keep culture um, alive is to, is not so much um, to try to save it, but try to grow it and to let it go. Um, my feeling is this. If you try to, once you start thinking about memory and culture as something to be pressed between the pages of an album, right. to be frozen in time, um, then it's already dead. Um, that's actually not something worth preserving at all. Um, what I care about is to take that sense, that sense that a kitten is licking the inside of your heart, and to make it something part of the future, to bring it forward. Um, and I, I think um, the best way to honor our past and memories and the suffering of our ancestors is to live well um, and, and to live the future um, with hope. Mm. Sort of living well and with hope is the best revenge. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right? Boy, could we, we use some hope and living well in, in these times. <sighs> yeah. Right? Seriously. Um, if, if there are times in your life where you might, say, practice the concept of mono no aware, um, what, what does that look like for you? It's, uh, it's so hard to explain sometimes. Um, it's, it's like this. Um, if, you, if you really... If you take the idea of, of time, of the large scale of time seriously, um, nothing we do has meaning, really, right? Um, no matter how hard you struggle, the universe is going to come to, a, to an end. Uh, we're all going to be gone. No matter how much you try to instill values in your children, they're going to be their own people. You're going to die one day, and they're going to go do their own thing. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so That's you know, the good news? So... <laughs> So, so, so if you think about it this way, you know, what's the point? Why, why, why do we bother doing anything? Why, why fall in love? Why, 
why struggle? Why try to solve problems? Or why try to build anything?、Um, and and then I go and you know look. Oh, at my- good. There's a there's a <laughs> and then and thank then, yes, God there is a key part. <laughs>、um, And then you know I I do the I do the the parent thing you know I, I go into my children's bedroom after they're asleep and I look at them and you know all of you who are parents have done this and it's it's an incredible moment you look at them and you're sort of like I don't I I know things are going to pass I know this is transient I I know that this moment cannot last and and even the very moment as I'm thinking about it it is already gone but. Gosh, it's so beautiful. I'm I'm human. This is this is what makes being human worth it.、Um, just this moment,、uh, the fact that I I got to be here, that I got to know these beautiful souls,、um, who、uh, are part of me and yet part of my wife and 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 yet so independent,、mm-hmm. um, and and there's there's this little soul that is coming to know the universe,、um, coming to feel that tickle of the kitten's tongue.、Um, I. Uh, I, I can go on. I can go on another day.、Uh, it's not, not a problem. Do you do you remember where that image came from? I don't.、Uh, yeah, licking the inside. It, of your it,、uh, well, I mean, I can, there is a source, and it's it's kind of embarrassing.、Um, oh, do、um, tell. <laughs>、um, <laughs> When I was little, when I was a baby, my grandmother、um, got me a cat to keep me company when I was a baby. But、um, <laughs> I apparently was terrified of of the cat. The cat was trying to be friendly to me, but I did not in, enjoy this at all. I mean, I was screaming、uh, apparently, and and so my grandmother ended up having to find another family to adopt the cat because <laughs> because. She thought I was going to be traumatized.、Um, so later on, when、uh, when people are all saying, "Oh, it's so cool to have the cat lick your hand," you know, it's such a such a nice feeling. I I always stayed away. You know, my friends would do this. I'm like, nope, nope, don't don't want anything to do with cats. Just cannot do this. You were traumatized. I was traumatized. <laughs>、uh, it, it actually took years before I finally allow myself to to you know pet a kitten and and have her. Licked my hand, and I was just like, "Oh, this is magical!、It、feels so."、Um, anyway, so that sort of stuck with me quite a bit.、Uh, but but I, I like cats now. But but for a very long time, I, I was terrified of cats. I thought they were just fur balls of death. And I no, it it it, it is a a stunningly beautiful image、um, to to hold in your mind's eye.、Um, Don't think I've ever read a phrase quite like that、um, in my life. Really extraordinary. So well, being scared is a good thing. You know,、uh, yeah, <laughs> apparently having you know having a grandmother that、uh, that wants to give you a cat as an infant、uh, turned out to be a good thing. Yes, eventually.、Yeah. <laughs> Ken Liu, y'all. That's it for another episode of Levar Burton Reads. I'll be back with you on April second. You all hit subscribe now, and you'll be ready. Our producer on this episode of Levar Burton Reads is the extremely talented Julia Smith. She is the best in the business at what she does, and we also had help from Audrey No. Our episode today was edited by the alliterative Brendan Burns, and my thanks this week to Charlene Higa for her help in providing pronunciations for the Japanese. In this story, 
Music by the brother-sister duo Katie Huary and Jake Huary. You can find Katie online for recordings and future performance dates. That's katieflute.com and at Flute on Instagram. Katie and Jake are both simply dynamite. And my thanks to Ken Liu, who is doing us all a great service by sharing his gifts with the world. As I mentioned, today's story comes from his collection, The Paper Menagerie and Other Stories. If you want to hear more from Ken, be sure to sign up for his mailing list on his website. That's Ken Liu, K-E-N-L-I-U dot name. Ken Liu dot name. Now, if you love the show, and want to help other people find it, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And while you're leaving that review, why not suggest a story for the show? LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Chris C.B. Bannon and Jenny Radelette-Mast of the Flying Radelette Sisters and yours truly, LeVar Burton. I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter at LeVar Burton and LeVar.Burton on Instagram. I'll see you next time. But you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.